Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Gleam got a big update with version 0.19. With this, the build tool has been expanded to support Gleam's JavaScript backends. Remember, Gleam can compile to JavaScript, which is pretty cool, as well as the primary Erlang backend. Also, any Gleam packages published to Hex, you know what Hex is, it's the Beam ecosystem package manager. It now includes the project code compiled to Erlang. And why this matters is because that if you wanted to use a Gleam package in Elixir or in Erlang, you'd used to have to also have the Gleam compiler installed to use it, right? Because it has to compile that Gleam into Erlang. Well, now you don't have to with version 0.19 because now it'll, it'll just include the Erlang by default. So that's great. And also, more as a tip, you can use Mix Gleam. This is a different package. We've got a link to it to integrate Gleam into your Elixir Mix project. So it's a great way to like just try out Gleam without really leaving your familiar Elixir ecosystem. So if you're really interested in checking out Gleam, it's getting better with every release. Try out Mix Gleam, which is just a, a cohesive way of including a, a compiler tool chain and hook it into your normal workflow. So yeah, give that a check out. That'll be really, really cool. I have got to try out Gleam soon. Like, it's getting too good. Just a reminder what Gleam is. It's the type-safe version of Erlang, right? It's a, it's a new language. It's inspired by Rust and by Elixir and uh, by Erlang. And so it's a very friendly language. But the big thing about it that's a differentiator from Elixir and Erlang, for that matter, is that it actually has types. So if you're looking for that type safety, check out Gleam. That is really interesting. I have not seen the mixed gleam thing. How does that work? Is that like with sigils or something to designate? Here is some gleam code. I don't, I don't think it's like that. You know, you might be thinking of like something like Ziggler. You know, with the the Zigil C and it'll compile it. That would be interesting if maybe mixed gleam could like expand to do that, or maybe there be a different package. No, mixed gleam. I think is just a set of like Elixir code to hook into the gleam compiler. You know, you can have like your normal lib elixir code and then also a slash source src code folder that contains your gleam things and so this is how like you can easily have gleam code inside of your elixir mix project and like refer to it right it's probably not super complex as to help our library to make them acknowledge each other and next up we checked in with brooklyn myers about joining dockyard and just to get clarification, because he was talking about having a boot camp. And so he clarified, letting us know that the idea that Dockyard has is he's joined them as a full-time employee. And the goal is to build an open boot camp for training new developers into Elixir. Because one of our questions was, is this an internal training tool for Dockyard employees? And the answer is no. So while Dockyard is starting the program, there is also no requirement for graduates to work with Dockyard afterward. So it is something that can potentially help funnel talent into Dockyard if that's the path a student wants to go. But it also seems that it's just another interesting and exciting community resource that I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, anything to teach and introduce programmers into Elixir, I think that's going to be a good move. So thanks, Scott Dockyard, for funding that. And thanks to Brooklyn for leading that with them. Also up, there's a, another Gleam-oriented news. Well, it's not exactly about Gleam, but it's by the Gleam creator, Louis Pilfold, who made a library called, well, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but I'm going to say it's Thoas. Thoas, like T-H-O-A-S. So what it basically is, is JSON, the JSON library written in Elixir, ported 
to Erlang. And why that matters for Gleam is because, well, Gleam is Erlang compatible, right? So this is a way of Gleam to get a super nice and fast JSON parser. So Louis ported JSON to Erlang. Now Erl, the broader Erlang ecosystem has access to that really nice and fast you know, JSON parser. There's some things that weren't ported. So things like support for Elixir protocols, that's not going to be supported <laughs> in an Erlang uh, JSON parser. There's no support for pretty printing uh, JSON yet. There's no support for detecting duplicate object keys or order dictionaries or keys as atoms or floats to Elixir decimals. There's you know, there's a lot of niceties you know, that JSON has that, that Thoaz doesn't quite yet. But if you're interested in that, a nice compatible JSON parser, go check out Thoaz. And we were tipped off about another master's project being undertaken to add set theoretic types to Elixir. So we've got a link to this in the show notes where you can check it out and read more about the project, especially if you're interested in types. You know, now we're on this kick in this set of news about types in Elixir and the Beam languages. I think it's great that Elixir is interesting enough to people that they want to explore these more theoretical projects using Elixir. And like we talked about before, Interesting and practical things can come out of some of these research projects like Dialyzer and other efforts. So this is interesting just to see. I'm not actually familiar with what set theoretic types means. From what my little reading of this paper, it looked like it was a progressive type system that they're looking to try and lift on to Elixir. So I'm all for it. Hope good things come from it. Hey, are you a NeoVim user and have you noticed that it takes forever to like open a file lately? Maybe you've updated NeoVim or TreeSitter or something. Like on my machine, it's been taking like a second or two. And that's like way too long to open up a file. Especially if, if you're like jumping around to a bunch of different files. Every time you open it, it's like a second or two. Ugh, I hate that latency. If you've noticed that, it's probably because you've recently upgraded stuff. And like most upgrades, sometimes they come with regressions. And, and it seems like that may have happened with, with TreeSitter. So it looks like there's a performance regression in TreeSitter. Um, I was hinting to this in a previous episode, and I, and I think I blamed it on Elixir LS. So here's my public apology to Elixir LS. It wasn't you. <laughs> it turned out it was uh, TreeSitter. We've got links to the specific issues where they're you know, a- analyzing what the issue is. So just some background. NeoVim includes TreeSitter inside of NeoVim because NeoVim now uses TreeSitter for syntax highlighting and, and stuff like that. But the improved version of TreeSitter isn't included in a release of NeoVim yet. So they found it, fixed it, but NeoVim doesn't include it yet. Unless you're installing NeoVim nightly, but it's not in a tagged release. So it'll come soon. And the version of TreeSitter that you're looking for is 0.20.2. If you're that or newer, you're probably noticing a better performance. It's still a little bit of a latency lag, you know, of opening up a file, but it's certainly not as bad as what it used to be. So hot tip, NeoVim user, if, if that's you, make sure you upgrade. Maybe try out NeoVim nightly to get past this regression. While I was digging into this, there's a good way to, to like test your, your NeoVim timings. Like when you open it, it'll time all the things that it loads. So you can like kind of pinpoint what is causing your NeoVim to be slow. And I found that um, I've been on a Mac lately. I found that it actually takes like like half a second to 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 find Python. So you can short circuit it by setting a a, a vim variable to like just point directly to you know because you know where your Python is going to be. You can just short circuit it and just go straight to it. That knocked off half a second for me, which is crazy. So anyway, NeoVim user, go to Nightly for a little bit until a new tagged release comes out. I presume NeoVim zero point six point 
you might have it. And we just wanted to acknowledge that the Elixir and Nerves focused book that's called Build a Weather Station with Elixir and Nerves is now out of beta and is available at Pragprog. So this book was written by Alex Kutmos, Bruce Tate, and Frank Hunlith. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes with a link to the tweet where you can actually get a discount. There's no sponsorship here. Just think it's great to have another resource in the community. Hey, we mentioned before that Lambda Days was moved from February to July, but we didn't have any dates before. Well, looks like they've got some dates now. The conference is going to be on July 28th through July 29th. This conference is going to have an in-person and virtual tickets available, uh, and we'll have a link to it. But go check out lambdadays.org, and you'll find their upcoming conference, and they should have dates posted there now. Lambda Days, again, is a functional-oriented conference. So Elixir is included in that, but it's not Elixir exclusive. And a good conference to go to. Very interesting. You learn a lot about different languages, too. But it is functional-oriented, so that's a happy place to be. And there was an interesting PR discussion about Livebook's Kino library that made me think. So I was impressed with Kino as I recently tried it out. And the previous way you put inputs into a Livebook was it ended up creating some HTML comments that ended up showing up in your markdown file for your Livebook. And honestly, that was a bit hacky. So they came up with a new way to do inputs using the Kino library and the inputs are described as code, and they, when they get executed, they actually render an input onto the screen. There's a number of different types of controls, and you can bind them to capture their input changes and things like that. Coming back to this PR that I saw, I have a link to it in the show notes. The PR started from Dave Lucia, who works at SimpleBet, and we interviewed Dave in episode 75. The thing Dave said in his PR is, we started using Livebook for technical interviews at SimpleBet. While preparing for the interview, I wanted to combine a Kino text input with XUnit. So he's wanting to have inputs come on a live book page and be used in a test file, an XUnit test file in a live book, doing this for interviewing. And I was like, wow, you know, I have never really thought about using Livebook as a live coding exercise platform. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of things with this. I wanted to make sure people had this as a reference because the PR started to say, well, how can we make this work better? How can we make this easier? And then Jonathan ended up coming in. He's the primary developer of Livebook. He comes in on the thread and he says, well, actually, we can do it this other way. So he shows how we can do it. So this also has a teaching and educational aspect too. This is why Brooklyn Myers was interested in this and tipped me off to this. Because if you're trying to teach people and introduce them to XUnit and tests, then Livebook is a great way to do that as well. So I thought that was really interesting. So there's a education, training aspect, but also interviewing. So heads up out there, if you're interviewing people, it's something to consider using. And heads up, if you're interviewing yourself, you might end up being challenged with some live coding exercises in Livebook. <laughs> so David, I, I just wanted to get your th thoughts on that. What would you think if someone said, hey, we want you to do a live coding exercise in Livebook here? If they sent me a Livebook link, I'd be really excited because then I know like how into Elixir they are. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'd be pretty pumped, I think, because that's a good way to mix up like the problem statements your executable code and like both folks can see and render, you know, uh, evaluate it on their own, the interviewer and the interviewee. So I've used other tools. They're generally like a souped up IDE where it's shared program output. It's just like one, one file, right? And if you wanted to put in like a, the problem statement somewhere, you just have to put that in as a comment. 
And there wasn't in those things. I'm thinking of things like coder pad. There's no graphing. The keynote does isn't there, right? So yeah, like live book. Oh man, that would be like luxury. <laughs> yeah, you get code completion and stuff. Yeah, luxury. Very interesting idea. Something to check out. And it's another example of using LiveBook in ways it wasn't originally intended for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have long left NX. Huh? Thinking back to like what the PR was about, like that there was a, a problem that they were trying to get over. And it's, th- this is a problem I, I sometimes have to like, it comes up in PR reviews a lot uh, with other, other folks is that boundary between runtime and compile time. Mm-hmm. And LiveBook blends it even more because it is like on the fly compiling too. But that that was the the crux of the issue there is like XUnit works by compiling a lot of stuff. And so if you you want to get some runtime input, you have to cross that runtime compile time boundary. And that's that was the tip that uh, Jonathan have uh, had was was how to cross that well. And it, so it's pretty cool, that, you know, in an environment like 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 LiveBook, it does that dynamic compilation too. So like you can cross that boundary a lot easier. Yeah. Versus like a like a, a release environment for you know a production app or something like that. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Isaac Yonemoto. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thanks. So Isaac, you gave a talk at ElixirConf talking about Zig and Ziggler. And recently, there's been a lot of exciting stuff talking about Zig just in the news that we've been covering. And with Burrito, the topic that we had recently with episode 81, with Quinn and Digit talking about what they're doing, wrapping up Elixir and using NIFs. And Zig played a big role in that. So we're really excited to be able to talk to you more about what your involvement is with Zig and Ziggler and help us learn a little bit more about how this can help our own projects. But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to learn just a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, so I'm a programmer in the United States. I have been programming for a super long time. I was fortunate enough to go to an elementary school where they taught us how to type. And then as soon as they taught us how to type, sorry, I'm talking about like in first grade. (laughs) As soon as we finished learning how to type, they started us on programming in Logo. What? And then basic. And there was like a reward. If you finished early, you could you could play video games. Oh wow. <laughs> Which is like really, really weird for an elementary school. So is that your motivation? Is like I really want to play these games, get this basic stuff out of my face. <laughs> I think that's how it got started, honestly, but I don't really play video games anymore. It's like pr- programming is my video game. <laughs> that's the way I feel too. Uh it's just a really frustrating slog sometimes, right? <laughs> well, you know, the game is make those red red dots go green, right? And then <laughs> when you're done with that, make more red dots and then make those red dots turn green. It's a primary stimulus to like, you know, encourage you. We we have like a very like high dopamine response in our job all the time. That's true. Do you remember being on an on a like an Apple II or a Commodore? Like, where were you writing logo back in first grade? <laughs> yeah, so on in first grade, it was on a Commodore sixty four, and one of my neighbors was, I guess he was a program manager at the National Science Foundation growing up, and he didn't have any kids, and he was like a little bit of a second father 
And he convinced my dad, hey, like, you, you got to, like, get this kid into tech. My dad was not really into tech, actually. He was just kind of like a middle manager in the federal government. And he said, like, look, you got to get your kid into tech and convince my dad to, like, get an Apple IIe or, two, sorry, 2C, the one that was, like, a portable computer. Uh, <laughs> in, in air quotes. It had a handle <laughs> on the back. You could, like, carry it around. So I was doing it at school, I was doing it at home. And, you know, I, I mean, I was just super fortunate to like have been landed in that situation. Was this a public school? No, the school that I went to for elementary school was not was not public. Well, I was about to be impressed if it were a public school. I was like, wow, you, you landed some some really crazy good uh, teachers there or, or crazy specific <laughs> teachers. It was a weird school that was started by a bunch of, they were like child psychology PhDs. Oh, <laughs> you guys are all part of a study. This sounds like a school for like like uh, hosting uh, sci- uh, experiments on children. <laughs> I joke that it was like started by the CIA or it was funded by the CIA because like <laughs> it was in this office park. If you've ever heard of the hot zone case where there was like an Ebola outbreak in Reston in certain, like some monkey lab, it, that was like a, that happened across the playground from from my school. I find oh, I, I find this out oh, many, many years later. Luckily, that happened after the school had moved locations. <laughs> wow! All right, so so first grade, we know that you you know you started up on logo. You start, you, you did some basic afterwards. So that was that. You know, you, you say that was a long time ago. What are some of the high points of like how you came to Elixir? I know we're going to talk about Zig, which is another different programming language. But what was your journey like from logo to <laughs> Elixir? So I actually have not really been a professional programmer for too long. I didn't study programming in college. I instead was on a track towards becoming a biochemist. I, I did many years in biochemistry, so I got a PhD and did some postdocs. I think the most significant thing in programming I did professionally there was I scraped a genome off of a, a website hosted by the Beijing Genomics Institute. <laughs> I kind of was fooling around with the idea of writing software that would let you edit biological sequences in the cloud. This was around 2012-ish, and I actually had a talk with uh, Sajit Vikrasemaran, I think is his name. He's the CEO of Benchling, and so I probably might have gone to work for them, but I had other ideas of what I wanted to do with my time. Um, so they were building a similar product. And I was just one person who knew a little bit of Ruby. I knew Ruby and Sinatra. I actually never got into Rails. Then I started doing some work in Julia. That was really fantastic for a lot of numerical computing stuff, and I learned functional programming that way. And so I, I went from Ruby to Julia. You know, Julia was fun, but... I really wanted to go back into doing more HTTP web sort of stuff. And then I discovered Elixir and Plug. Took me a long time to learn Phoenix, probably about two years into 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 doing Elixir and Plug that I finally was like, all right, I got to learn Phoenix. And it was LiveView that, that really got me. I was like, all right, I got to learn Phoenix to learn LiveView. Well, it's interesting you you mentioned Plug. Yeah, I, I, I also really enjoy Plug, but I came to Phoenix first and then dug into Plug. But plug is like one of those surprising things that I found to really enjoy, you know, uh, architecturally, you know, being introduced into Elixir. 
I also want to step back into Julia. It seems like of the new languages that are newer languages that are out in the world right now, Julia gets a lot of attention for what you said, like numerical computations and kind of takes the place a little bit of like R or Python in certain areas. I didn't realize it. You, you said you picked up functional programming from Julia. Is Julia a functional language? I thought it was object-oriented. It's functional in the same way that Elixir is functional, right? Like, okay, you know, it defaults to immutable, but you have escape hatches. It's a working person's functional language. It's not a Haskell. Working persons. I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel about Elixir and Erlang, because functional was a choice that they made to make easier for the programmer. It was a practical choice, not a choice grounded in any sort of theoretical consideration, if I understand the history correctly. That's fantastic. I can see why there's some like mutual respect between you know Elixir folks and Julia then. Well, Isaac, I'm really glad you could join us because, as I mentioned at the top, there's a lot of interesting excitement and just news and stuff that we're seeing as well about Zig. Maybe you can give us a little bit of introduction to what Zig is. So Zig is a programming language that self-bills as a replacement for C. So the C ecosystem is extremely old and has a lot of, I would say, missing conveniences that should exist based off of what we know about how people program today. For example, a package manager, which Zig doesn't have right now, but is planned. You know, sane builds. I, I used to assemble software packages and build containers in the early days. These were computational containers. So I had to like learn all sorts of weird things that I've since left my brain about make and autoconf and cmake and kind of parsing. And, th- and those were not quite even as like mature as they are now, <laughs> which is a weird thing to say about something in the ecosystem, in the C ecosystem, excuse me. And, and that's kind of all ad hoc stuff. And it's not really something that the language itself has like brought in. My understanding of the genesis of Zig is that the author, Andy Kelly, was trying to write something in C and just said, man, like these are the things that I want. So it's basically C minus a whole bunch of things like preprocessor stuff, which is a whole second language you have to learn on top of learning the C language itself. And then plus one thing, it's kind of metaprogramming, but it's a different flavor of metaprogramming than, than Elixir has, for example. It's just a thing that lets you do some amount of compile time metaprogramming. And so it's C minus a bunch of things plus no undefined behavior. I don't know if that's an addition or subtraction. <laughs> and, then, and then compile time metaprogramming. That's pretty cool. You, you kept on seeing, saying uh, C minus because I know there's C plus <laughs> plus. So now, now I'm just going to think of Zig as C minus. Minus some of the pain points, right? It's C, <laughs> C minus plus. <laughs> and then the other big, huge plus is like the tool chain, right? So like mix.exs and xdocs, if you will. Those are, those are going to be part of Zig. So during our talk with Quinn and Digit about Burrito, they mentioned that Zig is a front end to LLVM. And I'd never heard that before. And I thought that was really fascinating. I was wondering if that's true. And if you can take a moment to explain what that means. This is actually probably an obs. It, it, I, I don't want to say it's it's wrong because it's at some point it was right. It is slowly becoming more and more incorrect way of thinking about Zig, but probably as of like say three months ago, it was correct. So Zig 
assembles something called LLVM, and LLVM is the compiler you know, that is actually fairly generalized. A lot of languages target LLVM, for example, C, Rust, Fortran, bunches that I can, that I'm probably not even, I'm sure you can get like a Python or a Ruby that targets LLVM. I think there's, I saw something about a Ruby that targets LLVM. So you can pipe all these languages in to create a common sort of like compiled interface. LLVM takes that and turns that into executable code. And LLVM is featured enough to like really do nice optimizations on different architectures fairly easily. So you can do ARM, x86, RISC-V, Spark, pick your architecture, even WASM. So it's kind of this like lingua franca of compilers. The reason why I say it is becoming obsolete for ZIG is that they are now creating something called ZIG Intermediate Representation, which can then be forked off into either LLVM or direct compilation to x86 and a whole bunch of other architectures itself. So depending on what you're doing, if you need like super, super optimized stuff, yeah, go to LLVM because that that's like a huge research project on top of a battle-tested people from big companies are contributing to it. So you're going to get really nice tight code, but it's slow. If you need fast compilation times, you can go directly to the architecture of your choice and you'll get Zig's idea of what it should be. It might not be the most optimized, but compilation will be fast. And I think for most of them, you'll also be able to do hot code reloading. So (laughs) that's a surprise there. That's a surprise. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time for us to get an introduction to what Ziggler is and where your responsibility and involvement is in this whole ecosystem. It was kind of just a project that I started for fun. And also because I saw Zig and there's just something about the programming language that really resonated with me. Probably the C minus part is what resonated with me because I used to program in C and it was nice, but I, I didn't love it. And I really didn't love C++. So I found Zig and there was something about it that just was, oh man, this is what I'm looking for. I had a use case and my use case was that I wanted to have ICMP ping in the Beam virtual machine. So ICMP ping is that, you know, when you type ping and you just see if something is accessible over the internet, you get a response and you know whether or not you can see that thing over the internet. And at the time, you really couldn't do that. And so I was shelling out to some command line ping program, and we were getting zombie processes, and it was not not nice. And it actually took down uh, my server once. So I said, you know, maybe we can do something better. And so I decided to, like, explore writing NIFs for this purpose. And this is a huge yak-shaving operation. I wound, wound up write, learning about NIFs and writing a thing that would let me write NIFs in Zig. And the concept in Ziggler is that your NIFs should be in line with your code. So you write your Elixir module, and inside of your Elixir module, you embed Zig code. And uh, there was kind of like a little fun Inception thing that I did. So it was in the NervesConf talk, which unfortunately seems to have been lost. So it runs Zig code, and inside I had assembler code. So it was like, embedded assembler inside of Zig and inside of Zig was uh, that that Zig was embedded inside of Elixir. The reason why I picked this is I, I really wanted you to see what the code was and just kind of like be able to like remove indirection. And 
at work, I work on a really huge code base and just indirection just like drives me up the wall. You know, it's, it's a necessary evil sometimes, you know, but I just want to be able to like, you know, copy paste something into like the search bar and then like search for it and then, and then see where that happens everywhere in my code. And, you know, if you have to like publish your, uh, a library up to some package manager and then have that be loaded in by the Elixir, that's just like, that's a level of interaction that I don't super love. There's probably some hack you can do where you're like using Git submodules or something like that, but you know that that's not. <laughs> that's a whole other can of. That's a whole other can. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I've gone down that road. I advise against it. <laughs> exactly. That was the driving motivation behind building Ziggler the way it's built. Use use Zig, and then you type Sigil Z, and then you write Zig code. You have to put in a couple of annotations here and there to say this function is is a NIF. And it reads the code, it interprets the zig, and generates the nif, like shim, to go between being a nif in the beam. And your module has bound inside of it those functions that it looks like you're literally writing functions in your module, uh, except they're not in Elixir, they're in zig. That sounds like almost like it was an intentional feature of the language to be able to bring it in that close. It's a little mind blowing, really, to say, and within Elixir, I can have this code, I can mark it off and say, this is Zig code. And then that the Ziggler library helps create that binding shim or the bridge that lets variables pass through and results come back, right? There are two things that make this easy. One, Zig is incredibly easy to parse. That makes it easy. And the, I mean, the other thing is, I mean, Elixir is kind of designed to do this, right? We have like inline templates. EEX templates are a thing, right? I think a Surface does something like this too, right? It's kind of like these sorts of things are easy in the language. So this all started out as you described it as a huge yak shave to get your ICMP ping working. Did you ever get that working? So I did eventually, but at the same time, we basically got ICMP support through the beam. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of hit at the same time. And so I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll I'll just use Socket, the new Socket library instead. But that really does come back for me to to say there are use cases for something like Ziggler and Zig integrations where there's something outside of the beam that's running, the VM, and there's something that I want to integrate with. What are some examples that you can help us kind of get pictured in our minds so we can see where this can help us in our projects? I think one place where I really foresee something happening is to have a nice NX CPU only backend. Although I don't know, like Zig apparently supports G- GPU shader compilation, so heck, maybe somebody who has like who's a lot who's good with GPU programming can figure that out too. The reason why I think this is potentially really exciting is because Zig has really good cross compilation capabilities, especially if you use the LLVM backend. And I think that the Burrito project really takes advantage of that. But for example, Ziggler itself has first-class support for nerves. And if you were to say create a, a nerves project and write your inline Zig code, it will do all the work of figuring out what you need to do with that inline code and then turn it into a ARM-based or x86, depending on what your nerves device is, shared library. And then it will ship that part as part of your nerves release. And it'll just be there and it'll just bind in and work. 
the cross compilation facility. So suppose you're on a Mac and you're developing in in Zig, but you deploy to Linux. I imagine that um, for something like NX, a CPU NX backend, it could like be easily recompiled without having to like do any sort of weird shenanigans. You know, if it were a CPU NX backended library, you, you would only recompile it once when you build your project, unless you do like mix steps.clean or something like that. I know Wojtek Mach was really excited about the cross-compilation aspects of what Zig can do, even giving examples like being able to help cross-compile node modules that have C integrations or bindings. Um, and I'd never really considered that Zig could have even play a role in that. Is that something that just works? Or how, does it, how do I make that take advantage of that? One thing that's interesting is that ZigCC is a drop-in replacement for GCC. The example for this is for Hugo, which is a static site generator in in Go. And it uses something called Cgo, which cannot take advantage of the cross-compilation abilities of Go because it needs to do some C compilation behind the scenes. And it turns out that you can alias CC as ZigCC and get Hugo to cross-compile so if you're developing on Hugo in a Mac and then you need to deploy to Linux, you're good to go. So I imagine that's what he's referring to when he says that it could be useful for node modules that need to cross-compile. Because of your close involvement, you know, running the Ziggler project, I'm sure people come with you questions and things that they're trying to do. Have you seen examples where being able to run something that might be performance important in a NIF like that, through Zig, have you seen places where that's been a big performance boost for someone? I don't think so, not yet. I mean, the project's still too young. I've gotten a few PRs. There's still a lot of rough edges around it. Like, a lot of people seem to be wanting to try Windows, and I don't quite have Windows working. That's, you know, that the, the, the Windows header file for, for NIFs is apparently a little bit tricky. So there's there's a lot of work that needs to happen to get to that point yet. There's a bunch of interesting projects. I mean, actually, I think I think in secret, like one of the things that I'm interested in exploring is some sort of like compilation to WebAssembly. And I have like a little side 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 project that I haven't <laughs> started working on where you can surface a beam module and serve that up and the beam module will be loaded and you can call it through JavaScript as if it were like a JavaScript object. So that's that's something I'm kind of like thinking about working on, but I have like zero time for that. I love that your side projects have little side projects off of them. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the framework for that actually compiles the zig and then rebinds it as an if as part of the testing suite. So the idea is that if the C can read the module and do the things that it expects, then we're in good shape, right? And then the assumption is that when you when you go to WebAssembly, then it will do what you expect there as well. Well, one of the things that you mentioned there was that Ziggler is pretty early days still. Are you looking for contributions? Are there ways that people could get involved and help out? I'm currently working on the 0.9.0 release. I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but I'm matching the semantic versioning to the semantic versioning of, of Zig. Zig 0.9.0 came out about Oh my, it's like 20 days now, 20 days ago. And so I'm a little bit behind, but I, I started it and 
the first two of the three major hurdles have been crossed. And the third one is I need to redo how allocators work because allocators have changed in the standard library of Zig. It's early days partially because Zig itself is unstable and anybody working in it needs to be okay with the fact that like stuff could just have huge tectonic shifts. But I think my plan is to round out like one or two opinionated things that I really want to do. Hopefully they'll hit in the 0.9.0 release or maybe in the 0.9.1 release. And once those are done, I am going to start opening up to contributions to the library directly. Obviously, if somebody's like, oh, here's a here's a documentation error or here's or here's a way you could do this function better, it'll be like, yeah, please, PR. PRs are open for sure, but like I don't want to like super encourage people to do big things until the base architecture is like decided. With that, are there any other shortcomings or cautions that you wanted to relate? I think I recall one of the things you said in your presentation is that if I include those sigil Z code snippets and have some zig in there that it might compile more often than I might want, like to the zig compiler. Is that right? Yes. And this may actually wind up going away as a problem because I believe that zig is going to get incremental compilation as well. Incremental compilation and hot code reloading. So (laughs) we probably wouldn't use hot code reloading for Ziggler because you got to build a shared object and rebind that anyways. So it's not like actively executing. But yeah, that that might not be a shortcoming in the long run. So changing subjects for a moment, I, I saw that you tweeted something about an open API based kind of project that you're working on. And I know that there's like adapters out there for like consuming a, a, a Swagger YAML or something or some other op- open API YAML that describes what what the the endpoints are, are going to be and what the responses should be. But you're working on something that's not quite that. So it's the other way around. As far as I can tell, currently all of the open API libraries for Elixir as a server generate the open API documentation from code annotations that you put into your code. For a long time, I've just always believed that that's kind of not the way you want to do open API code. You want to take the schema for the open API schema and then generate your code from there. Open API is designed for you to do it in either direction, really, but they provide you with these required hooks called operation IDs that you can basically map one-to-one onto functions that handle handle things in your controller. So yeah, the idea is to is is to have something that will take your open API spec and then auto-generate your router. You don't write anything in your router, and then you provide it with the controller module and the controller module will will need to surface functions for you to write that map onto operation IDs in your open API schema. This is another thing that I worked on over the three companies that I've worked on. Everyone I've deployed some open API stuff. I have a really terrible um, open API library that only exists on, on GitHub that does this in the direction that I want. And it came up that we're creating an open API API at the company that I'm working at now called Vic.ai. And I was like, let's 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 do this right, the right way. So what this library that we're working on right now and the provisional title, so look out for this, is Apiarist, A-P-I-A-R-I-S-T, which is somebody who works in a as a beekeeper as a as an apiarist. Oh, right. Okay. Got it. <laughs> that makes sense. 
I couldn't use Apiary because that's like a that's like a real company name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or I think they don't exist anymore, but it was for a while, and they're now owned by some other company, Oracle. You'll just do use Apiarist dot router or something, and it'll generate the router, and then you just make your controllers. And everything is like plug based. So this goes back to this is a deep deep cut, but we're going to go back to like. Learning plug first. <laughs> <laughs> to the beginning, yeah. But the funny thing is I, I never actually really learned how to use plug correctly until having to build things like with this system. So now like I really I feel like I have a much stronger understanding of of like why plug made some of the d- decisions they did. You know, like why does plug init do the, the weird thing that plug init does now? So now I understand. <laughs> Hopefully that will come out in the next like three to four weeks. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really under the gun to get this out. So. <laughs> so, so trying to understand the usage of this. So if I if I have an API spec that, that we've also you know written for our, ourselves, then I would use Apiarist to look at that that spec, and your library is going to set up the router for me, and then also validate. It sounds like to ensure that all the controllers and and controller actions are set up. So, so it's a validation. It's it's like a, a mixed tool to validate that you've implemented your spec that you said that you're doing. Is that that sound right? One thing it'll do is it'll egress. Uh, it'll it'll check all of your data that's ingressing into your system. So if somebody sends you malform data, it will do a validation and it will automatically throw. I believe it's a 422, but that'll probably be configurable. In in test and dev environments, it will also inject plugs that will check your results. Plug gives you a way to like put in these functions that like are called on send or whatever on response. I think is those validations will only happen in dev and test. But you know you're writing tests, so like everything should be good, right? <laughs> and it will 500 if those don't match. Ah, uh, okay. So you've got some test helpers, some dev helpers in there. Yeah. All right. So you're you're automatically like conforming values. Like like if if it says that this value is supposed to be a, uh, an integer, and we get a a stringed number, does it try to conform it to an integer for you? There are a couple places where like things that get little get a little squirrely, right? So like uh, form encoded will only give you strings, and if you specify in your in your schema that this needs to be an integer, it will also parse it and type marshal it into an integer. Oh, okay. All right. So, so you have a, an option there. You can either hardline it or or be a little bit more flexible, huh? Yes. That sounds very interesting. Sounds like that's maybe a few weeks off. Yeah. But uh, as that happens, we'd certainly want to cover it in the news. And maybe if you're ready to, to share something, we'd we'd love to dig in a little more on that. Awesome. Because that certainly does sound like it would be something that could help a lot of people, organizations, larger teams, where you're saying you're having to commit to an external API, and that's kind of done first. So did I get a sense there that there might be some code generation that it does, like you might take this and generate some of my controllers that don't exist already or something? There's no code gen, it's all macros. Okay, well, interesting. The bad version of this that's in my GitHub repo does code gen. And then I realized I shouldn't, this is not the right way to do things. I should, I should use, I should properly use macros. So if there's like a, a, a create action here, it sounds like your library is going to generate that create action, but then give me a spot to put in the actual business logic to respond. That's right. So so you you have to write a controller and the controller should expose a function that matches the operation ID that you specify in your schema. That sounds like it's it's a it's a much bigger thing than I originally had in my head. 
So I'm very excited to see where you go with that. And the crazy thing is not very much good. (laughs) (laughs) The magic of macros. Yeah, it's so much boilerplate. So it must be like a lot of the same kind of stuff. I guess I guess the one part is that like the JSON validation that that's a separate library that I had from the previous phase and I rewrote it and made it good and that's actually now on on HexPM. So if you need to do any sort of JSON schema validation, check out the library is called Exonerate. Exonerate. Okay, I'll have to go check that out. And yeah, that is also has like like inlining code. So maybe there's like a little bit of like there's a little bit of DNA that goes through a lot of the packages that I write. (laughs) Well, thank you, Isaac, for meeting with us and helping us get a better idea of Zig, where it's come from, how people are using it. And really, it's like, it sounds like an exciting project in its own, just that it's rapidly changing. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. I love that I have a better understanding of the LLVM backend and how it's there's some other ways of compiling it that might involve hot code reloading, which is totally mind-blowing. And then thank you for helping us get a glimpse of what you're talking about with this open API. Very interested to see where that goes. If people want to follow you or get in touch with you online, we'll have links to a bunch of this in the show notes, a lot of resources you mentioned, but where should they go to do that? Yeah, so probably the place that I'm most active as a programmer is Twitter, and the Twitter link will be provided. I actually don't really have any other social media, so... That's your only choice. There is no alternative. <laughs> Unless you consider GitHub to be social media. They're, they're trying. <laughs> but but like, I, I, I'm I honestly flooded with so much stuff from GitHub. If you try to, f- I mean, sometimes I miss PR requests for work, which is like, whoops. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.